Welcome to Let's Talk Death, conversations to inform and inspire. Let's Talk Death is being brought to you by Heal Grief, a nonprofit providing the tools and resources to support one's journey with grief. We seek to empower individuals to achieve a healthy post-bereavement growth. Everything we do is inspired by our core belief that no one should ever grieve alone. Let's Talk Death is a series of conversations with some amazing people from various fields. Our goal through these conversations is to normalize, educate, and demystify the taboo around death, dying, and the journey of grief. Hello, welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Death. I'm Fran Solomon. And I'm Andy McNeil. And we are thrilled to be your host for these conversations. Our guest today is Daniel Kenner. Daniel holds a master's in educational theater from NYU and a BA in theater from George Washington University. And he is a proud member of Actors Equity and National Players Tour 60. In the spring of 2017, within a month of each other, Daniel's parents died, leaving him an orphan. They left behind their legacy, Daniel, who spent hours with his mother during her last year weaving together his parents' life stories. Room for Grace is a love story of family and community told by a mother through her son, dealing detailing the 60 years of a life well-lived. In the spring of 2022, Daniel facilitated a five-week storytelling residency that utilized the power of storytelling as a processing tool to cope with the demanding stress of caregiving. Through Daniel's experience, he's created art-based research projects titled Tuning In, A Window at the Moment, and Branching Out. Daniel, we are delighted to have you as a guest on our show. Thanks for having me here, guys. Andy, Fran, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Daniel, before we speak about your work, may I first take you back in time and ask you to share about what it was like for you having both parents die within weeks of each other. Yeah, it was, it was harrowing. Um, my dad was diagnosed with frontal temporal lobe dementia on Valentine's day of 2013. My mom was diagnosed with colon cancer four months later in June of that year. So up until that point, it had been, you know, long and loving and extremely challenging three and a half years. Two days after Father's Day of 2016, my dad fell down the stairs of our basement onto hard concrete. So he basically spent the last seven months of his life basically paralyzed. And then a month later, on my 30th birthday, uh, because their timelines were so interconnected, my mom finally went on to hospice after 63 rounds of chemotherapy. And so, you know, going back in time, there were a lot of quiet moments of reflection, which I was very grateful for. You know, um, one of my best friends lost his parents in a plane crash in 2012. And so we've had a lot of conversations about what it was like for me to have a long goodbye and for him not to have any sort of goodbye. And I feel very lucky that I got to have a long goodbye. I feel like nothing was left unsaid. But at the same time, it was very difficult seeing these two people, you know, I consider my dad, my hero, 
And then I guess watching my mom deal with my dad's dementia, she then became one of my heroes. It was, it was demanding. Um, I was very, very grateful for our community. A lot of people stood up for us. My mom was a special education teacher for 30 years in Providence and one once one teacher of the year. And my dad was a theater director. And so I felt very lucky. My mom, one of the tools that she had used was using Caring Bridge. And so she was posting journal entries and letting the kind of the community in. And as a family, we kind of embraced this concept of yes and asking for help. And so I think that was a true blessing because I never felt alone doing this caregiving. But for those last few weeks, to answer your question more directly, Fran, it was on the thing that I really remember are, are, are three, three things. The first was in late January, I was at my dad's bedside and he was having such hallucinations about his mom who had passed away and his dad being above his bed. And he told me that he was about to die. And so I thought I was in that moment with him. It was very, very heavy. It was very real. Um, that labored breath that really only comes at the end of life was very present. And so in that moment, I, I thought it was just me and my dad. And then I had to go home and I had to tell mom that dad thinks he's going to go. He's going to pass over. So about three weeks later, he finally got pneumonia, which is, you know, kind of a death sentence. And he went on February 20th. And this is another moment that I really remember. I was in there. Fortunately, it was me and my two brothers at dad's bedside when he gave his last breath. And so that, that look um, was truly beautiful. And I was so glad to be with my brothers for that moment with my dad. Um, he's truly proud of us. And my brothers are now great fathers themselves. So there was a lot of love and just showering of recognition. All three of us are very much like our dad. We're um, creative and a little bit rebellious and kind of just in love with our families. Um, and so we were together. So at that point, mom was on oxygen and needed a wheelchair to get around. So she was outside of the facility. My aunt was bringing her in, but she took another moment in the sun. And when she came in, I literally just looked over to my mom and I said, it's over. And, you know, four weeks later, again, we were all around my mom's bed at this point. Um, it was a lot harder for my mom to go. She, it took her maybe about 16 hours for that kind of pain to fade away after getting the last rites from the priest. But after my mom went, I just, I said the same thing. I said, it's over. And I don't know, I'm thinking about that now, but there was just that to answer the question, it was very heavy, but I was very lucky to be, um, fully present for most of that journey for three and a half years. Yeah. You know, hearing, hearing you describe and talk about this, I, you know, there is that sense like, like it, it's over. Like something, something is, is, is over here. Like this, there's been this journey that is this person's life, their own life, but then their life with me, their life with family. And now somehow a page is being turned like it or not. And, and I've heard from somebody, you mentioned your friend who, um, you know, his parents died suddenly the difference between the two 
the similarity between the two is that at some point, at some point there is this, this turning that happened. Like there's this, it happens and it's kind of even stark, even when we're expecting it, those moments can be final, very final. I think it's maybe the. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think you can prepare for what you're going to feel. No. Andy, I love the, the analogy of turning the page. I think something that was really a true saving grace for me, which you were kind enough to introduce in my opening is that I was able to, I needed a cathartic project to kind of keep me close. I I live in Brooklyn. I'm an artist and my parents were still in Providence in the house that I grew up in. And by 2013 and 2014, every time I would come home, there was going to be a new normal. And it was very difficult for me to keep kind of catching up on every month home. And so I needed this project to kind of keep me close and to make something. Uh, So coincidentally, tomorrow is my parents' anniversary, uh, September 29th. But for my my parents' 30th anniversary, which was in 2015, we went as a family to Bar Harbor, Maine, and we spent 10 days and I conducted an oral history project, which kind of resulted in the publication of Room for Grace. And so I love that idea about turning the page because in 2017, after my parents passed, for the next year, I still had their voices. And I was able every day to have accessibility to these voices, to these stories, these memories, um, these challenges. And so I love that idea of turning the page. So I might not have had that presence with them, but for the next year, I was still very intertwined with them as my job was literally to put their lives on paper. Let's Talk Death is being brought to you by Heal Grief, a 501c3. As a nonprofit, we are reliant on the kind generosity of our donors. If you are inspired by our mission, we ask you to go to healgrief.org backslash donations to help us continue our great work. No gift is too small. What made you think to learn all that you could about your mother and father's life? Um, We don't hear that often. We hear people in survival mode wanting to spend time with their person, but not really taking that deep dive into, tell me your life story. To be honest, it kind of was born from a morose thought, which was that my grandmother, my nan, my dad's mom, passed away from Alzheimer's in 2004. Um, So I was 18 years old. When my mom and dad were really sick, my niece was 17 years old. And I felt very close to my nan as I was, as I was growing up. But what I found that after she died was that time passed on and I didn't really have that access to a lot of those stories and missing of nan. And so I got into a really big depression thinking when my parents go, there are going to be members of my family here who might not have that, that access to my parents' stories. So it was really kind of born out of that fear of missing my own grandmother and then thinking about my niece, Julia, you know, losing her grandparents. Um, and it kind of was born from that thought. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious as you were, and I want to, I want to delve a little bit into have you share a little bit about just the, the the writing project and what that was like for you. But I'm, I'm curious if in that process of, of writing, 
couple of things. What sticks out to you? But also, was there anything that surprised you in that process that maybe you didn't expect? Or Yeah, thanks. I found early on, my mom was, I don't know if I said this, my mom was a special education teacher in Providence. And she was very proud. She always knew she wanted to be a special education teacher. And so I knew that because that was her passion, I thought that that would be a great framework for the book. So my mom was in room four at her school. And basically, I thought it would be a good idea to try to find the lessons that she had taught her children, that she had learned from the children about how those connected to her role as not only being a caregiver for my father, but becoming a student herself of colon cancer. And so I guess one of the stories that sticks out to this day is a story about a young child who was on the monkey bars. And this was after my father, he was originally diagnosed. And so he had to leave his job. Um, He was also a theater teacher in Providence. And so let's say a Monday, her child was on the monkey bars and he made it one ring and he fell. On Tuesday, he made it two rings and he fell. Finally, on the third day, he made it three rings and he fell. And my mom was really, her perspective was disappointed that the student didn't get all the way across the monkey bars. But from the child's perspective, when he made it three rings, he fell and he got up and he kind of did the Rocky stance. Because for him, each day, he got a little bit farther. And so I just, I really loved that, that um success is viewed differently through different eyes through different perspectives and i just really like the idea that my mom she was willing as a teacher to say if the student is succeeding through their eyes then that's the only perspective that we need um so i I definitely think that that's one story that really kind of paves the way I mean, there were many, many others. Each chapter is literally based off of a, a different child and a lesson that she learned. And and then we kind of turned that inwards to, you know, our four-year journey together. Well, it's and what's what's also interesting hearing you share this. And and again, I, I haven't read it. I, I would look forward to reading, to reading uh, your book. It sounds like just as much as the book might be about her death it's really about her life totally which is which is in, an interesting piece to that and just hearing that story made me think of i work with families in a lot of different settings and i work with parents and one of the things that i'm working with parents on is exactly that thing that your mom saw in children that you just said and that is that success is different in different eyes mm-hmm. and what we think of success as an adult looking at children it's very different than what a child is thinking about those milestones mm. that are part of success along the way. So it's beautiful. And that sharing experience that you had with her, um, I, I can't imagine what a gift that was for the both of you. It, and truly that we both said each other, like on the last tape that I still have is her saying, this is the greatest gift anyone is giving me. And, you know, us crying together and me saying, this is the greatest gift that anyone has ever given me. Um, It was truly, I mean, I literally have access to 30 hours of tapes of stories from my parents. I I feel very, very lucky. You know, the friend I was talking about earlier, he's got, you know, two voicemails from his parents. 
Yeah. Um, so I consider myself very, very lucky. Yeah. Daniel, um, tell me, so how did that shape your career? Tell us about your verbatim plays. My path has completely changed after I wrote Room for Grace. The next play, I, because Andy, you put it so nicely, it's not only about mom's death, but it's also about her life. I felt like a little bit of my dad's story was missing a little bit. And so then I spent the next year, the next play I wrote was called Fragments. And that's basically about a millennial caregiver going through grief. And I definitely kind of harked back to some of the unused tapes that I didn't use in Room for Grace. And so I started using this archival document as you know input into this play that I was writing. When I went for my master's in educational theater, I kind of learned about verbatim theater, which was kind of started by Anna DeVere Smith in the early 90s. Uh, there in, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, there was a riot between uh, the African, uh, African-American community and the Jewish community. And she was there on the ground conducting interviews. And then she wrote a fire in the mirror. And that kind of was the beginning. And then a Laramie project was very big about the killing of Matthew Shepard. And so those are just kind of two examples of verbatim theater. So this year, again, like you said in the intro, I did a, I facilitated a caregiving residency uh, with six caregivers because I wanted to try to impart stories on caregivers about how to access joy uh, when things are getting really challenging and difficult. And the second week of the of the residency, one of the things that we were talking about was what is a song that brings you back a powerful moment of your loved one? And so to me, that brought back that moment when I was with dad at his bedside in January that I was speaking about earlier when he saw his mom above his bed. When I re- went back and replayed that memory for myself, there in the distance was Bob Dylan's album, A New Morning Playing. And so you know, new morning and day of the locust and man and me and time passes slowly. These songs were kind of playing softly. And so I realized that there is a connection between music and dementia and transporting between memory and time and place. And so the first real verbatim play I wrote was called a window at the moment. And I interviewed 22 different people, geriatricians, music therapists, occupational therapists, caregivers, geriatricians, and one man living with dementia. And what I wanted to do, I wanted to use these voices in the act of discovery to kind of go down memory lane with people about how different songs bring about different memories. Yeah, so I was just able to finish that this summer, which I'm I'm really, really happy about. I'm really proud. I actually just submitted it to the O'Neill Conference yesterday, uh, which is a great playwriting opportunity. Uh, there'll be thousands of plays submitted. So it very well couldn't be mine, but it was the first time that I actually did submit. I got over my fear of not thinking it was good enough and, and submitted it yesterday. So I feel really, really good about that today. Wow. Well, then, Daniel, uh, this is, this is, this has been, this has been a great conversation. We, we only have a few minutes left, but sure. I did want to give you an opportunity. Uh, many of our listeners like to know how they can connect with our with our guests and so i'm curious how would how would people connect with you if they want to connect with you with your work how might they go about doing that that'd be awesome uh i have a 
a personal website, which is just my name, D-A-N-I-E-L-Kenner, K-E-N-N-E-R.com. Uh, we also have roomforgrace.org. Um, and, or you can just email me at kenner.dan at gmail.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm very accessible. I, any day that I get to talk about my parents is a good day. So uh, whether someone you know, needs somebody to talk to or wants to talk to me, uh, I would love to make that kind of heart connection with people. Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much for being a guest here at Let's Talk Death and for sharing the inspiration behind your work. Thank you, Fran. Thank you, Andy. If you would like to learn more about Heal Grief, visit us at healgrief.org to find other conversations or to inquire about becoming a guest speaker. Visit us at healgrief.org backslash let's talk death. And if you feel inspired to support us, remember, no gift is too small. Visit us at healgrief.org backslash donations, or you can donate right through our homepage. Well, that's it until next time on Let's Talk Death, where we normalize, educate, and demystify the taboo around death, dying, and the journey of grief.